0: All right, well, let's pray before we get going here. So, Lord God, uh, prayer that's on my heart is just the aspect of the psalm that says, uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. So, Father, hear my prayer that these words that are really your words would communicate the hearts and minds of the of the hearers may their may the eyes of their heart and the ears of their heart see and understand so I give you thanks and praise and ask this now in Jesus name amen well i think of all of the various movie clips and things that i have used over about the last nine or ten years. I think probably far and away the one that has been everybody's favorite is uh, one that's called That's My King. And it features uh, Dr. S.M. Lockridge uh, reciting, it's part of a sermon that he delivered when uh, he was pastor of Calvary Church in, in Southern California. And in this, he he really extols on the characteristics and the virtues of his king, Jesus. And if you've never heard it, I mean, if you haven't heard it here, you really ought to. It's easy to find uh, on the internet. If you just search for That's My King, there's a number of versions that will come up. Most of them, I think, are on YouTube. Um, And I would show it now, but we really don't have time to do that. So I just want to give you a snippet so you can sort of get a sense of the rhythm and flow. And... uh, out of respect to Dr. Lockridge, I'm not going to try to do it the way he would do it. Um, yeah, I know you're all going to, it just wouldn't fly. And As much as I would love to be a black preacher, I'm not. So, I can't, uh, I can't pull that off, so I'm just not going to try. But, part of that sermon goes as this. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere, he's eternally steadfast, he's immortally graceful, he's imperially powerful, he's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son, he's the sinner's savior, he's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem in higher criticism. That's my king. Now, with that in mind, I'd like you to listen to a slightly different take on Dr. Lockridge's message.
1: The Pocketbook says, my money is the key to happiness, it's the key to power, it's the key to peace, it's the key to success, it's the key to capitalism, it's the key to producing purpose, and it's the key to finding love. That's my money. I wonder, do you know it? My money is a supreme money. No debased deceiver can debunk its buying power. It puts bread on the table, it makes me feel stable. It's the core of consumerism, it is beyond criticism, it has no euphemisms, do you know it? It wakes me up in the morning, and it keeps me up at night. It is the reward that I hoard, it dictates my day, it divides my attention. It's the big Benjamin. It's the cherished cheese. It's the green gravy. It's the lean lettuce. I wonder if you know it today. It has motivated every great person in all of mankind it is incorruptible it is indestructible it is the translation of technology it is the prescription of the powerful it makes my heart appease and it's the only thing that puts me at ease do i want more of it yes please i wish i could describe it to you yes it's uncomfortable it's uncontrollable you can't get it out of your mind. You can't get it without demand. Without it, you can't get by. You can't buy without it. The world can't function without it, and it lasts for all eternity. Yes! Yes! <laughs> that's my money. Go ahead and clap your hands if you need to, cause that's my money. That's my money.
0: The distraught man frantically rode his horse up to John Wesley, shouting, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. Weighing the news for a moment, Wesley replied, No, the Lord's house has burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. We might say, Get real. But you know, Wesley's reaction didn't stem from a denial of reality. Rather, it sprang from life's most basic reality, that God is the owner of all things, and we are simply stewards. More recently, a man named Jerry Caven had a successful restaurant chain. He owned two banks, a ranch, a farm, and several real estate ventures. At age 59, he was searching for a nice lakeside retirement home but the divine owner had other plans. God led us to put our money in time overseas, Jerry says. It's been exciting. Before, we gave token amounts. Now, we put substantial money into missions. We often go to India. What changed the Caven's attitude towards giving? It was realizing God's ownership, Jerry explains. Once we understood that we were giving away God's money, to do God's work, we discovered a peace and joy we never had back when we thought it was our money. You see, John Wesley and Jerry Cavan have something in common that all of us need to cultivate. And that is a life-changing understanding of God's ownership and our stewardship. It entails a shift in our thinking from that's my money who that's his money. And so we're going to continue on in this series where we're sort of doing questions and answers about God and money. And uh, so today, as our first question, we're going to look at what is stewardship and why is ownership fundamental to it? Well, I think for a lot of people, stewardship kind of seems like an old and dying word. You know, it's one of those old church words that we've heard for a long time. And it probably, in some people, even conjures up this image of, you know, the big red thermometer that was at the front of the church that sort of showed how close the church was to paying off its mortgage or, you know, to reaching a particular goal for a building project or whatever the case may be. But stewardship is really just too good of a word, both biblically and historically, to just abandon. And it's actually gained some new traction. I think in recent years because, you know, we, we talk about stewardship of the earth and stewardship of the environment and so these are, you know, sort of being resurrected in a sense from the ash heap of, uh, you know, old churchy religious words to really uh, kind of take hold of its biblical understanding. Because the foundational meaning of stewardship is not found in popular culture or in secular culture but in the biblical roots that it has. And so, for right now, we can simply define a steward as someone an owner entrusts with the management of his assets. I'll say that again. Someone an owner entrusts with the management of his assets. There can be no understanding of stewardship until we have an acute understanding of ownership. Okay? The steward cannot do his job well without clearly grasping who owns and who does not own what is entrusted to his care. Okay. Question two. Is God really the owner of it all? Well, I think, I don't think I know. From beginning to end, scripture emphasizes God's ownership of everything. Now, just consider the the carefully the cumulative weight of the verses that we're about to look at the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it well that is really tiny (laughs) sorry Uh, to the Lord your God belong the heavens even the highest heavens the earth and everything in it the land is mine And you are but aliens and my tenants. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. And finally, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty it's hard to imagine a more comprehensive declaration of absolute divine ownership of everything. Furthermore, search carefully, and you will not find a single verse of Scripture that suggests God has ever surrendered his ownership to us. And if we should think, well, at least I own myself, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. God doesn't just own the universe, He owns you and me. And if we're His children, we're twice His first by creation, second by redemption. And so stewardship includes the divinely delegated management of our physical, our mental, Our spiritual lives and the exercise of our God-given gifts and skills. All right? Our stewardship encompasses the protection of human life, caring for the young and the disabled, the vulnerable and the oppressed. We're stewards of our families and our workplaces and our communities and our churches and our nations. We're caretakers of animals and the earth's environment. God's entrusted all of these things to us. And not only does God own everything, but he grants us our money-making skills and determines how much of his wealth he will entrust to us. There we go. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. Now in the financial world, a good investment manager doesn't do with his clients holding whatever he feels like. Why? Well, he knows that those assets don't belong to him. They belong to his client. And so a good steward is always going to act in, in his owner's best interests. And so he's going to do that by consulting with and listening to the owner so that he can understand and implement whatever his investment priorities are. You know, I mean, and this is sort of, this is not unusual stuff. This is fairly common knowledge. If you're younger and you're talking to an investment manager, your strategy is going to be different than if your retire- retirement age or near, right? Because when you're younger, you can afford to be a little more aggressive with your investments to maybe earn a little bit more interest, but you're taking on more risk. When you get older and you're getting closer to the point of actually needing to use that investment money, you start to back off that risk a little bit you know, and, and invest in some safer um, securities like bonds you know, that really that take the risk out but still can produce some income. And I think you know we would all do well to kind of read and reread and even memorize those "God is the owner" passages that I cited here a few moments ago. because stewardship and that's properly serving as God's asset managers requires us to constantly live in that light of understanding that God is the owner of all of it. It's not ours. We are stewards over it. Now, again, John Wesley, uh, who I mentioned a few moments ago, had four questions that he would use to help decide how to spend money. Now, notice how the last three sort of flow directly out of the last one. So the first one was, in spending this money, am I acting as if I owned it, or am I acting as the Lord's trustee? All right, question two. What scripture passage requires me to spend this money in this way? People are starting to squirm now. It gets better. Can I offer up this purchase as a sacrifice to the Lord? No, it's okay. You can laugh. And finally, will God reward me for this expenditure at the resurrection of the just? I'll wait here while you all write these down. <laughs> Send them out tomorrow It's a reminder. See, if we really believe that God is the owner of all that has been entrusted us, shouldn't we regularly be asking him, what do you want me to do with your money? What do you want me to do with your possessions? And should we not be open to the possibility that he may want us to share large portions of those assets with those whose needs are greater than our own? Question number three. How is stewardship synonymous with the Christian life? Well, you know, God expects us to use all of the resources that he gives us to carry out our responsibilities in furthering his kingdom, right? That's the goal. We want to further the kingdom. And so this includes caring for our families, our homes, businesses, our planet, whatever else that God has entrusted to us. And so if we think about it, the steward's primary goal is to be found faithful to his master. You know, to be found faithful in doing what his master has asked him to do. And he proves he's himself faithful by wisely using the master's resources to accomplish the tasks that are delegated to him. And, you know, we're talking I guess mostly about money, but those resources don't only include money. but can be time, it can be your gifting, it can be your relationships, It can be employment. It can just be life opportunities in general. And so if we look at it from this perspective, stewardship isn't just this narrow subcategory of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. You know, God's ownership of not only our money and our possessions, but our time and abilities and everything else needs to be central to our thinking. And if, if you really stop and analyze it, a lot of the problems that we have begin at the point we forget that God is the boss of the universe. But to take that a step further, he's really more than the boss, he's the actual owner. You know, I might resent a powerful person for taking control, but everything changes if I realize that he owns everything. And he's got the right to do whatever he chooses to do. As long as I'm holding you know tightly to something, then I kind of believe I own it. but when I give it away, I relinquish that control, I relinquish the power, I relinquish the pre- prestige that it may have. When I realize that God actually has a claim, not on just a few dollars I choose to throw into the offering box, not simply on the 10% or even the 50%, but on 100% of my money, it's revolutionary. If I'm God's money manager, then I'm not God. Money isn't God. God is God. So God and God's money and I are all put in our rightful place. Not only does God own everything, God controls everything. And the implications of that are enormous. Because what, what does that allow me to do? Well, I can resign my self-appointed role as God. I don't have to try and control everything. Which, honestly, really never worked out that well, if you think about it. See, I can, I can rest assured that the universe is in better hands than mine. And even what God has placed in my hands is still not mine. It remains his. See, God's ownership and his sovereignty offer a life-changing and freeing perspective when our houses might be robbed or it burns to the ground or the car is totaled or the laptop is stolen Or the diagnosis is terminal cancer. When we come to Jesus, God puts all his resources at our disposal. But he also expects us to put all our resources at his disposal. That's what stewardship is all about. And so if we believe that God is the owner of all that has been entrusted to us, we see that what we do as his employees puts his assets and his reputation on the line. It's then, and it's only then, that we discover the question that we should have been asking all along. God, what do you want me to do with your money and your possessions? Question number four. What do Christ's stewardship parables mean? There's a couple of these. There's a story of the shrewd manager in Luke 16, and it's one of several of these stewardship parables that we find in Scripture. And it shows that each of us should carefully invest our financial assets, gifts, and opportunities so that it has an impact on people for eternity, thereby making preparations for our own eternal future. The parable of the talents in Matthew shows that we're each entrusted by God with different financial assets, different gifts, different opportunities. And we'll be held accountable to him for how we've invested them in this life. We're all supposed to be preparing for the master's return by enhancing the growth of the kingdom through wisely investing his assets. And then the parable of the ten minas in Luke shows that with those com- comparable gifts and assets and opportunities, we will be judged according to, their fa- to, to our faithfulness, our industrious, and our wisdom while we're investing in God's kingdom. And so consequently, in God's eternal kingdom, we'll receive varying positions of authority, with which Jesus describes as ruling over cities, apparently, on the new earth. So question five, what what does Jesus teach us about the property owner? Okay. So each of these stewardship parables has two major subjects. The master or the owner and the servants or the stewards. Right. So let's look first at what lessons sort of come concerning the master. Well, we have ownership. So it teaches us that the master is the true owner of all the assets. The possessions, the money, and even the servants belong to the master. And he has the right to do with everything as he wishes. Then there's a lesson about authority. Authority is that the master's will is final. His decisions are determinative. That's it. Master makes a decision. That's the final word. Trust is talked about. See, the master has delegated to his servants a significant amount of financial assets and authority over that money and those possessions. And so that indicates that there is a pretty significant amount of trust present between the master and the servants. And it also shows that he has a willingness to risk delegating responsibilities to people who can and sometimes do fail. It's also generosity. See, although the master has the right to expect that the servants do what he commands without rewarding them, the owner graciously promises reward and promotion to his stewards who prove themselves faithful. And then finally, expectations. See, the master has specific expectations of his stewards. They're not easy, but they are fair. He has every right to expect his stewards to do what he has told them to do. The servants know that he has high standards and should not presume upon his grace to be lazy or disobedient because the master will take away whatever reward he would have given to the servant who was unfaithful and will discipline him for being a poor servant. Meanwhile, he will delight in pouring out reward upon the faithful ones. So then question six says, well, what does Jesus teach us about the property manager in these parables? Well, first of all, stewardship. The servants should be acutely aware that they are only caretakers or money managers. It's their job to take the assets that were entrusted to them, not given to them, entrusted to them, and use them wisely to care for the uh, master's estate and even expand it, if possible. They learn accountability. Well, they don't own these assets. The servants are accountable for them to the master. They're going to have to stand before him one day to explain why they invested things as they did. One servant's efforts are not going to be sullied by the incompetence of the others. The master may deal with each servant entirely as he wishes. Each servant is responsible only for doing the job that was entrusted to him and to be prepared to give an account to one from whom nothing can be hidden. Faithfulness. Servants need to be trustworthy, you know, to handle the estate in a way that's pleasing to the master. They do this until the master returns or until death, no matter how many years it may be until then. Stewardship is the servant's life calling. You can't resign. Industriousness simply says that the servants must work hard and, to do, and do their best. Wisdom, because they're managing the master's assets, servants must choose the investments wisely. They can't afford to take undue risk or to let the capital that they've been given erode through their idleness. The goal isn't merely to conserve resources, but to multiply them. Remember how upset the master got with the servant who just buried the money? The servants must be wise, resourceful, and strategic thinkers regarding the best long-term investments. Respect. The stewards know that the master is just. His instructions are explicit and his expectations are high. They know that he'll reward them if they do well, but that um, if they're unfaithful, they're going to get disciplined. They're going to feel the master's wrath. And so that kind of healthy fear motivates them to do a good job. And then finally, focus. See, all of those side interests are kind of brought into orbit around this idea of stewardship as the one consuming purpose of our life, which is to serve the master well. That's what we're called to do. And in context, that leads to the statement uh, that Paul made that says each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul asks, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. See, when we stand before our master and maker, it's not going to matter how many people on earth knew our names, or how many called us great, or how many people considered us to be fools. It's not going to matter whether we have schools or hospitals named after us, whether we had a big house or a small house, whether the funeral that was had for us drew 10,000 people or no one. What's going to matter is only one thing, And that is what our master thinks of us. So question seven. Are you ready to meet the owner? See, a man went to visit the caretaker of a large estate that had an absentee owner. Noticing how meticulously the caretaker performed his chores, the visitor asked him, when do you expect the owner to return? The caretaker's reply, today, of course. Like soldiers ready at any moment for a barracks inspection, servants are constantly aware that this could be the day when the master returns. See, if they knew when, if they knew the day or the hour, well, then they could waste time. They might borrow some of the master's money, you know, we'll put it back before he gets back. When they cease to expect the master's return, then embezzlement or squandering becomes a huge temptation. But if the stewards know that the master is a man of his word, then they live each day as if it were the day of the master's return. Because one day it will be. See, either Christ's second coming or our death brings us to the point of standing before the Lord. And either event marks the end of our service as God's asset managers. And so at that moment, our service record freezes. It's, that's, it's the end. That's where it is. You keep, there's no more changing to be made to it. And it's at that point that it's in its final form to be evaluated By our master. The apostle Paul warned against this kind of complacency. He said, you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains began. And there will be no escape. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. The thief's design is to make his victims poorer by taking their treasures. And if our treasures are on earth, then Christ's return will indeed make us poor. Because it will take away our earthly treasures, just as surely as a thief raiding a house. But if we stored up our treasures in heaven then Christ's return will not take treasures from us but bring treasures to us. Christ's will turn the thief analogy on its head because the faithful believer will not become poorer when Christ returns but immeasurably richer. Even if Christ does not return for another 200 years or We will meet him in our deaths, whether it's 20 years, 20 months, or 20 minutes from now. I pray that's not the case for all of you. The point is that God encourages us not to be surprised about the immediacy of our appointment to stand with him. If we are ready to meet Jesus, we're going to long for his return. If we're not ready, we're going to dread it. And if we don't feel ready to meet Him, well, how about now being the time to start getting ready? So here's the question that I want you to think about in this week ahead. As God's child and His money manager, what personal, spiritual, moral, and financial changes do you need to make to get ready to give him a face to face account of your job performance this is the heavenly version of when your employer says okay you need to do a self evaluation <laughs> which i can remember from my time in the work in the secular workforce everybody hates right because there's always that well, I, you know, I sure as heck don't want to point out my flaws, but I also have to be careful that I don't want to toot my own horn too loudly. You know? So you sort of walk this weird middle line of, I think I did a pretty good job this year. You know, and then you go before, you have to give that to your boss who then sort of makes that determination as to whether you did or not. Well, that's sort of the same thing that's going to happen when we come face to face with God and so now's the time to start to think about that if you haven't already and think about okay is there something in my life that I need to make a change to some aspect about the way I spend or the way I Conduct myself. As we said, this is this is a series about money, but it often cuts across all aspects of human life. Right, because as I said, being a steward is not just about being um, faithful with money, because that's not the only resource that God gives us. So think about that. And I want you to all come next week with a written down, no. (laughs) It it would be a very empty church next week. I fully know that. I would just be probably just, well, I don't know if George might come, but he may not. So I would just be here by myself proclaiming God's word to an empty building. No, you don't have to write it down and bring it. But I would encourage you to think about it. Amen? All right. I've uh, been having a sense this week, actually, on a couple of occasions, that um, I was going to sort of defer to John at the end of the service, that John was going to know what we were supposed to do, sort of to close this. And uh, So I just checked, and I asked him earlier, and he nodded his head, so I assume that God has spoken to him. So John, if you want to come up?
2: I keep forgetting that the uh, computer can't assume what I'm speaking and put it on the recording. Silly computer. Anyway, um, lost a train of thought. Sorry about that. What would you think of Jeff's message just now? Who would like the idea of uh, coming in next week with a report of how you thunk- think you've done with God's money? Does that make anyone a little nervous? Yeah. What do you think God gave us as a resource to make sure we wouldn't fail this? Any, his word? Um, If you've got your Bibles handy, why don't you turn to John 15? And I thought I marked this, but I'd make some bad joke about it's in the book of John, not the book of Mark through his. Starting on verse 5, so John 16, verse 5, and Jesus says, but now I am going away to the one who sent me, and not all of you are, or you're not asking, where am I going? Instead, you grieve because what I've told you, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate, now what's advocate mean? Comforter. Now, does an advocate serve the one he's advocating for? Does a comforter serve the one he's comforting? Hmm, a servant, is that a steward? What do you think the Holy Spirit is charged to steward? And if you think about it, it's us. So the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus, and a little bit later on he makes a statement that everything, that God has given Jesus everything, and the Holy Spirit only does what Jesus asks him to do, and of course Jesus came to save us. So the Holy Spirit is here to serve us so that we can be good stewards of everything God has asked us to do. Now... Does anyone think the Holy Spirit's going to have any problem when he stands in front of God and account for his accountability? Okay. So if there's a breakdown, the breakdown is going to be as the Holy Spirit tried to serve us. Did we accept the help? That makes sense to everyone? Okay. So God has provided as he always has a way for us to be completely successful with every task that he's given us with everything he's asked us to do. If we do it on our own strength, yeah, we get that "Uh, uh, uh, I don't wanna come in next week and say how good I've been or how bad I've been. But if we do it with the Holy Spirit's strength, it's a non-issue, right? We all track it. Okay, so that being said, what God gave me for ministry time today is I want all of us to close our eyes Um, And no one's going to cheat and look. Picture a table. And you're a customer coming up to this table. You're on one side. The Holy Spirit is on the other side of the table. And as you are going through life, you keep coming back to this table. And the Holy Spirit's job is to put on the table any gift, any strength, any resource that you need to complete the next step of your journey. Now, this is the place where faith comes in because we don't always know what the next step of the journey is, but the Holy Spirit does. And if he puts something up on that table, do we reach up and take it? So what I want you to do now is picture the table and look and see what the Holy Spirit is putting on the table. And he's going to put something there for every one of us. So it's not a question of if. It's a question of are we prepared to receive? There's no guilt if we're not. The journey we're on is learning to trust the Holy Spirit and learning to look at that table and see what he's put up. The only human in history that has taken everything off the table that the Holy Spirit put is Jesus, because when he came as fully human, he was fully dependent on the Holy Spirit, and it's the same Holy Spirit. So picture what's on the table and reach out and take it, and if you want to physically reach out right now, that's fine, no one's looking, and now look at what you just got. If it's, a, if it's something you're supposed to give to somebody else, what I want you to do in just a couple of minutes, I'll tell you when, get up and give it to them. If it's something for you, which it may be, take it to heart. If there's any question ever, take it to the Father. We can boldly go into the throne of God in our time of need. And if, you've just been put, if something has just been put on the table for you by the Holy Spirit and you don't understand it, I would say that's a time of need. Everyone tracking? Okay. That's really all I have on this right now. So, see what's in your hand. If you need clarification, take it to God and then in faith move on it. It may be simply a picture of someone. You might see a face of someone in this room. If it is, go to that person and ask why God sent them. To, sent me to you. But be bold enough to move on what the Spirit is giving you. Will you make mistakes? Sure. Will you go to someone who when you, you correctly saw it and they don't yet hear from God enough to know what it is? Yes, but faith is that hope for things unseen, and God's word promises that this is the way life is supposed to be, fully dependent on the spirit and fully dependent on God. He will never forsake us. He'll never abandon us. He will not leave us orphans. He will always be with you. I believe in the end of the Great Commission, he said, go therefore and I will be with you until the end of the earth. So he will be with us. So, examine what you've got and in faith, step out and move on it.
0: Thank you, John. So we're just going to uh, sort of enter in a time of quiet worship and uh, prayer and just continue to uh, meditate on what John has shared. See what is, uh, what is on that table for you. I'd like to have a couple of people who are released to pray to come up. And uh, just be available if you need prayer for anything at all. We have folks that are standing up here that you can come to and who would be delighted to pray Um, so that this really sort of ends our service for today but as i say every week it doesn't mean you have to leave it means you can if you need to want to but uh, you don't have to so if you want to stick around and just sort of bask in uh, in some quiet worship time or to get prayer for something we uh, clearly invite you to do that so uh, let me just pray a blessing over us and we will uh, call that a, uh, a Sunday. So Father, I thank you for all of these, your stewards that are here today. Impress upon all of us the fact of your ownership and our stewardship of everything that we have. Help us to make that jump from thinking that we own everything to we're simply keeping uh, keeping track of it for you, and should be doing with it what you instruct us to, Father, as we leave this place, I pray that we would all consider the question that was posed at the end: Are we ready to meet the owner? Give us insight into the areas that we, in which we may be deficient. That that meeting is one of, of great joy and excitement and not one of dread and fear. Bless all of these people now. And uh, wherever they may go, whatever they may do in the week ahead, Father, show them the way that they may be Jesus to someone else. The world needs Jesus, and we are his hands and feet. So show us, Father, that person that we can be Jesus to in the week ahead. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it, Lord. And I ask this all now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.